Good to be reminded uh, in song of the, the price of our redemption. And as we turn to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, this gives us a, a fuller explanation and exposition of, of that price, that eternal, uh, secure redemption that is ours through what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Hebrews chapter 9. We're, we're, we're getting back into our Hebrews series. We've been out for a few weeks and I'm grateful to, to Song. I'm grateful to Mick for uh, filling in and giving me a little bit of a break. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to be uh, looking this morning at uh, just a few verses. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14, and you've been standing already, so you can remain seated. But this is God's word. When Christ appeared as a perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goat heifer sanctifies and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your, uh, your eternal word. Uh, thank you that you are the living God. Thank you that you've made promises to your people that will never be broken, that will never change. And uh, we want to believe these promises regarding our redemption. Uh, help us, Holy Spirit, uh, to take to heart your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, all right, so what, uh, what I'm, there's a lot to focus on here, so I want to narrow it down. Um, and there's a couple of expressions in these verses that I think are curious, that I think are, are worth kind of um, digging up and, and looking at from some various uh, angles. And the first is really the, the last few words in, in verse 14. Do you see at the end of, of the, the section here where it talks about the living God? And, and I think that's a, that's a fantastic way to describe God, but it's a little unusual, right? Like the living God, what, what, what exactly is being... Um, described there or singled out, you know, what's being clarified when you use an expression like that. So we want to talk about that. Um, and then there's another phrase uh, that's in that same verse that talks about our dead works. And, uh, and that's a little bit unique as well. So we, we want to unpack that and, uh, and look at what does it mean that, that we're being redeemed from, from dead works. So in contrast to the living God, we have our dead works and the way that God saves us from there's really this theme of life and death that is through this eternal, uh, unperishable redemption. It's secure, it's, it's unchanging, and Jesus has accomplished it for us. So that, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So um, maybe, maybe you've had an experience like this. I actually hope that everybody in this room has had an, at least once in your life but it's actually not uncommon for it to be sort of cyclical. Um, it can be periodical as, as, as really the norm for the Christian life is not, it's not linear, it's not straight up, it's, it's, it's much more cyclical, kind of ebbs and flows as we 
hopefully still progress, right? We're, we're growing in our sanctification. We're, we're growing in our relationship with God, I, I pray, and I hope for all of us. But that doesn't happen uniformly. It happens up and down. And so there's, there's these places where, where we get sometimes, where we're kind of in the trough. And, we, and, we, and we're, we, God, through his spirit, reveals like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And kind of like the, the prodigal uh, in, in, in the pigsty, we come to our senses and we go, this is not how I'm supposed to be living. This is not what God has for me. And, and we just kind of, we, 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 we come to spiritual sanity. We're, we're just done pretending. We're, we're done with plastic religion. We're, we're done with, you know, Christian cosplay. <laughs> And, and we just want to meet with the living God. I want real religion. I want substantive spirituality. I, I want what uh, the next chapter of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, echoing here in, in chapter 9, chapter 10 that uh, Mike was looking at in the, the class on the Trinity just in the past hour, where it says it's a fearful thing to fall in what's real. We need to remember there's a living God, not the God of but the, not the God that we trifle with, not the God that is a hobby to us, but the living God in, in, in whose hands like we ought to be afraid lest we're there before him in our sins. Uh, another way to express that was, was um, you know, David, before he was king, before he had all of his uh, glory and power and so on, he's just the shepherd kid and he's bringing lunch to his brothers who are on the front line with the Philistines. And they've got, the Philistines have their champion, Goliath. And all of Israel is shaking in their boots. Oh no, what's going to happen? We're all going to, you know, the Philistines are going to beat us. And David comes and he's looking at this Philistine and he, rem he reminds everybody, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Have we forgotten, Right? The living God, he's the one whose battle we're fighting. Let's not forget that. And so there's these periods, right, where we come to our senses and we realize God is no one to be trifled with. Re religion isn't something that we do on the side. It's either worth everything or nothing. Uh, and we, we get to these places where just no substitute will do. I want the living God. I need the living God. And, and this is echoed in the Psalms, Psalm 42. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When I out, can I go and meet with God? Psalm 84, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. I, and and I, have you, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you had those experiences? Have you had that experience? Maybe that's when you first became a Christian or maybe in your Christian walk, you kind of, you know, you're like me and you kind of go around the block a couple of times and you go, oh, I've just been in a haze. I've been in a daze and I, I need to come back to the living God, right? Um, now, not everybody lives that way. Not everybody has that conviction, that longing you know, to, to meet with the living God, to know the living God. Who's, not everybody's, some people actually just are insistent there is no God. There is no living God. You know, maybe God's dead or he was never there to begin with. These are, you know, they call themselves atheists or whatever. They are sure, they know that there is no God, um, which is a really curious position to take when you 
sort of pause and think about it, um, how can they be certain? How can, how can we as finite creatures who are still, you know, discovering how much we don't know about reality, about the universe, about ourselves, about, you know, how to live and so on, how can anybody be so sure that, that, that they know enough about themselves, about reality to, to say emphatically, I know that there is no such thing as God. There is no living God. Um, do you know how much faith that requires? <laughs> like, like, have you ever thought about that, that an atheist has more faith than you and I do, whose faith, yes, it's faith, but it's based on historical fact, historical people. There, there's, there's reasons to believe an atheist has no evidence that disproves the existence of God. So it's not only really takes a lot of faith, it, it kind of takes a lot of arrogance to adopt that posture. And there, so, so not everybody wants to go to that extreme, I get it. There are those that say, well, I, don't, I just don't know if there's a God. I, I'm not willing to say I know there is no God, but I also don't know if there's a God, and we would maybe put that person right in the category of an agnostic. Maybe he or she would say they're an agnostic. And it sounds more humble, right? And, and it probably is. Well, I don't know everything. I'm just going to kind of check out and say, I, I really can't know if there's a God. But but to that person, don't you want to kind of gently come alongside and say, well, the corollary statement's equally true then. Maybe you don't know if there's a God, but, but doesn't that also mean that you don't know if there is not a God? Maybe he is there? So instead of kind of hanging back and standing on the sidelines, maybe having more in common with those who say, I ah, know there's no God, if you're agnostic, why don't you kind of go insecurity and, and, and uncertainty Bring it to the God who you don't know. Maybe he does exist. And let him, let him do his work in your heart. Um, so there's different ways of viewing God, right? And we, we live around neighbors and, you know, coworkers, and you, you run into all kinds of people. Most people, though, do believe in God. They'll say they do, right? They, they say they believe in God. And certainly all the polls would, would confirm this. America is full of people who believe in God. We're, we're very theistic but how do we know if we're worshiping the right God? How do we know we're doing business with the living God? Like, isn't it, doesn't it maybe give you a little bit of pause? Isn't it sort of scary to think that somebody might be worshiping a false God who, who says that they believe in God, say they worship God, but what, how, what if, what if instead of worshiping the living God, they're worshiping a false God? The Bible has an old-fashioned way of describing that. It talks about idolatry, right? That's not a new word, but, um, but it feels like an old-fashioned word. But, uh, but that's really what we're talking about. Let's assume for a second that there is only one true living God and that all other gods are false gods. All other gods are gods designed you know, and according to our own image instead of the opposite. Let's assume that, that there really are such things as idols. How would we expect the one true living God to respond to the reality of idolatry? What, what kind of reaction would the one true God have in light of, the, of, of people worshiping a false God? Um, Perhaps some of you grew up in, in a church or in a, um, a congregation that, you know, said, well, we, we should expect 
God to be angry with those who worship false gods. Maybe that's what we would expect his reaction to be. Uh, you grew up hearing that God's wrath is directed toward, you know, listen carefully. It's, is there knowledge or discernment to kind of foolish when you think about it? It says no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say um, half of it uh, I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. Let me pause right there. It's talking about those who would take a block of wood uh, or, or, you know, um, cut down a tree and take some of the, the tree and, and chop it up for firewood and you're going to, you know, make your dinner over it. And the other part of the, of the piece of wood, you know, the trunk or whatever, you're going to carve away and make an idol and set it up in your house and, and you know, worship it. And so Isaiah is saying, Half, uh, I, I roasted meat and I've eaten, and, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand, right? So God expects his, um, his image bearers, God expects human beings to at least be able to recognize the, the foolishness and the futility of taking what you cook over and then, you know, after you finish your meal, worshiping it. God expects us to recognize the foolishness and futility. You're wondering, why is there a bag of, of, of Kingsford on the cover of your bulletin? The foolishness of, of, of you know, opening this bag like we did last night uh, and having some barbecued chicken. I'm out there on the grill and, you know, it, chicken was delicious. We all finished our meal and I, and I gather... Kathy and Lydia, okay, come on, we're, we're going to have, you know, some prayer now, and, and I just set this on the table, and let's, let's pray to uh, the, the, the briquettes, let's pray to the Kingsford God that, that helped us cook dinner, and that we, you know, I, some people are really proud of their barbecue, I, I get it, but I don't think you want to worship your briquettes. I know it can be a religion out there, but this is what Isaiah is saying, that's just ridiculous, that's foolish, and how would we how would we expect God to react to those who, um, who haven't thought through, wait a minute, that's just a block of wood. That's just something you cooked your dinner on. React. If somebody more than them shrunk you down to basically no more than the means by which you, you know, they get their dinner. For some of you, that's kind of a personal thing, isn't it? You feel completely utilitarian. You feel unappreciated. You feel like, you know, there's no, no real love uh, for you as a person, but, you know, you're there to fill your role and to, you know, meet everybody's needs and so on. Doesn't that make you feel a little like, hey, I don't feel seen. I don't feel understood. I don't feel real. There's some anger there. That's not wrong. That's not wrong. In Thessalonians, uh, Paul's writing to them and he's talking about how, look, your um, testimony has been heard by a lot of people and people are reporting the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So yes, there is such a thing as wrath. Yes, there is such a thing as anger for idolatry. The living God wants to be known. The living God wants to be seen. And I want to ask, is God really eager uh, to punish those who have this kind of futile and foolish view of, 
of what the deity is like? Is he eager to punish them? Is, is he eager to like rake them over those coals like meat on his grill? Is that what God's about? Like if that's the kind of God you grew up hearing about, I want you to be careful because those who think that God is happy to be angry at those who are worshiping a false God uh, don't know the living God. The God of the Bible is not happy to be angry at those who worship false gods. He's actually full of compassion and mercy to those who are lost in their foolishness and blindness who would be so futile as to bow down before a block of wood, right? The real God is, um, is, is full of compassion. Like you can think that the, the, that the God you're worshiping is the true God and then you find out, when, when, no, he's not. The living God calls the world away from idolatry, not just because he's upset with their foolishness and futility, but because he really has mercy on them for their ignorance. Um, Some of you know Sharon, one of our missionaries that we've supported for a bunch of years. She and her family used to serve in Afghanistan, and one of the ways that she would uh, reach out to the local women uh, was that she had some experience and some training in uh, in birthing. And... uh, and Afghanistan has one of the highest um, maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates in the world. And so instead of being like angry and upset with the poor hygiene, poor sanitation, out of compassion, she goes and she ministers to these women and was helping them, helping save the lives of these mothers, save the lives of these children, and, um, and in, a, in that sense, like redeeming these families giving them you know, life, giving them uh, health and helping them to flourish, ultimately as a way to show them Jesus. And, and that's, what, that's why God sent his son out of his compassion for us and our bl- lostness and our blindness so that we would be spared from uh, like a growing spiritual mortality rate. That he would come and, and, and show himself as the living God to us through Jesus. Mick did a great job last week of talking to us uh, how eager God is to show us mercy, right? His hesitancy to judge. Uh, his mercy's got a hair trigger, John Piper said, but, but his, his anger has a lock on it, right? It takes a lot to get God to act out of anger, but so little for him to respond in mercy. And second, that is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And, and this is at the heart of what David was singing when, uh, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle from the fir- for the first time. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, right? For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens and splendor and majesty are before him and strength and joy are in his place And God sent Jesus to show us the reality of who he is. He is the living God. Jesus is the living God who is among us. Splendor and majesty are before him. And in the presence of Jesus, there is strength and joy. Any other representation of God fails to do that. Why? Because Jesus, only Jesus, can redeem us from our dead works. The living God redeems us from our dead works. Um, that's, a, that's a phrase that's curious to us, right? Like dead works. What are the dead works? And as I was thinking about this too, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading the 
commentators and, and the scholars, and they're all kind of having this back and forth about what are the dead works? Some were saying, well, this is simple. This is, you know, the book of Hebrews. It's written to a predominantly Jewish audience. So this is like what James was describing when James, uh, in his epistle, talks about the difference between uh, living, saving faith and dead faith. Faith that sort of has all the right words, but doesn't have any proof. You know, yeah, I love God, but then, you know, your life doesn't reflect that love at all. Um, and, and so maybe this is very similar to, to that kind of language, dead faith, dead, dead works. Self-righteous ways that we kind of, you know, it's full of ourselves. It's like what Jesus was describing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember he's talking about people who fast, people who pray, people who, who give their money away. And he's saying, don't be like the people who are fasting and praying and being generous so that it, it's a show. And everybody can see how spiritual they are and, and will applaud them. Instead, you know, do that in secret. Do that for Jesus. Do it for God. Do it for your Father instead of for, for people's praise. So they're, they're, they're doing the works, doing the right things, but for the wrong reason. And that's maybe what these dead works are, right? On the other hand, they could be just good old-fashioned dead works like most people think of sin, the kinds of things that, that Paul says the wages of sin is death, these are the kinds of, of actions that deserve death. Sin as we conventionally think about it, you know, lying and stealing and sleeping around and you know, murdering people, all the good old Ten Commandments kind of stuff. Those are dead works, right? People know what those are. We were in, um, uh, went up to, to, down to Myrtle Beach for the first time a couple weeks ago and and, and so we did what you do, what anybody would do in South Carolina, right? Uh, you go to the beach and then you go to the fireworks store. So uh, we're in the fireworks store and, and, and I see this sweet old lady. Um, she looks like she could be my grandmother and she's at the cash register and I'm thinking, well, that doesn't, that seems a little out of place. What's the sweet old lady doing behind the cash register at the fireworks store? So I was just making small talk with her and, and I made an assumption. I just sort of thought, you know, is this a family business? Do you, are, do you own this? And she's like, no, 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 no. The owners, I just work here. Like, oh, okay. The owners have this shop and another shop, and they used to have a shop up North Myrtle Beach, but, you know, the black people were stealing all the fireworks. So they had to shut it down. Um, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> okay. Good for her, recognizing uh, shoplifting is wrong. That's a sin. Not so good. Uh, not recognizing that is racism. The wages of sin is death. Things that, that God says that is unholy and you cannot bring that into my presence and, and for heaven to still be pure, for my presence to still be holy and beautiful and perfect and good. That's not allowed. You can't come. That's what separates us from God. And so in order to come into his presence, We, we've got to be purified of that. That's got to be removed from us. We can't bring our self-righteous good works into his presence. And we can't bring our judgment-deserving bad works into his presence. Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works. You see that in verse 14? 
that, that how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. He's the perfect one without sin, without blemish. He offers himself in order to purify our guilty, shameful consciences from our dead works. Now, the, the dead works, it doesn't have to be any of the or. Truth is, we're, we're all, each of us, guilty of both. And what the Old Testament was pointing to through all those sacrifices, through the, the temple, through the priesthood, um, the stuff that, uh, well, that, that Sung did a great job of explaining a few weeks ago. You can go back and listen to his sermon for the first part of chapter 9. Um, those types and those uh, foreshadowings were there temporarily to show God's people you need redemption, you need forgiveness, um, there, there needs to be a sacrifice in your place, but those were as temporary as the spare tire that you and I put on our car after we have a flat. You're not supposed to keep driving on that. That's just supposed to get you to the, to the garage or wherever, tire repair, where you can plug that flat or get a new tire. You don't keep riding on it. That, that leak on the pipe, you know, that you fix with duct tape, tape on the pipe, you replace the pipe. Jesus is the one who comes and says, I am the fullness and the perfection of all of those sacrifices. He is without blemish, and he is the one who accomplishes an eternal redemption for us. That's what verse 12 is describing. It says, Jesus entered once for all, not repeatedly, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, it's not an insecure redemption, but a secure redemption, an eternal redemption as well. It's not temporary. So just, um, you know, all these ways of describing how full and effective and final the redemption that Jesus has promised us is. What's redemption? Some of you, you know, you can probably give a, a $5 definition to what redemption is, and that's awesome. Some of you maybe are just kind of new to the Bible and new to church, and you're here, and you don't have any clue what redemption is, and I'm just glad you're here. But I think maybe you do know a little bit, more, more than maybe you want to confess. Because we all know, right, that redemption has something to do with a payment. Everybody knows that. It has something to do with a payment, and you're right. Um, Paul gives a bunch of $5 theological words in Romans 3. He says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And we're not going to go through justification, propitiation, but there's redemption there, right? It's this payment of a debt in order to release somebody from that obligation. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. It doesn't say, it, uh, there's um, <clears throat> people who might consider themselves sort of progressive in their thinking. And they might be um, just sort of out in the world and they don't, they, they don't go to church and they wouldn't consider themselves Christians, but they just would assume that if there's a God, the God who's there, he's not, he's not looking for, for any kind of repayment. He's, he's actually in the church too who have adopted that same posture toward God, imagining that God's not upset about our sin. He's, he's just, he lets that go. He sort of sweeps it under the carpet. No big deal. 
And, and whether you're outside the church or inside the church, uh, there's a very, very broad group of people that think that God is really not bothered by our sin. It's his job just to love us and to accept us. And the quicker we kind of get on board with that, the happier everybody's going to be. And I'm just here to say that is so removed from reality, it doesn't even make sense on a day-to-day basis. Because every single one of us in here knows that when you mess up, there's a debt to pay. We know this instinctively. The, the absentee parent knows this instinctively. Uh, he's been working too hard, you know, he's been a workaholic, dad, dad comes home, and, uh, and, he, and this is why he's got to, you know, shower lavish gifts on the child to get the child's affection back. Or maybe there's been a broken home, and mom's been away, and she comes, and she's got to, you know, buy expensive gifts to kind of get, uh, try to pay back for the, the pain and so on. That we know that a payment has to be made. Um, when there's a, a, a fight or an argument between, you know, spouses. I'm going to take her on a like, fancy vacation and try to make it up to her. Where does that come from? We know there's a debt to pay. Um, you know, at work, you, you, you know, somebody messes up at work. Uh, maybe they, it was an accident or maybe they just, you know, blew it and the project's, you know, tanked or there's this huge accounting error or whatever. And so what does that person do? I have to make it up to the company. And they're going to work long hours, they're going to put it over time, or they're going to put their head down, their, their nose to the grindstone, and they're going to pay it back. We know this. That there is no such thing as just blanket forgiveness. A debt has to be paid when there's a wrong. Either the person who, who committed the wrong has to pay it, or the person who was wrong is going to pay it. I, I, I am notoriously late. I, I tell Kathy I'm going to be home in five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes later, I, I walk in the door. Who pays for my tardiness? She does. I, I mean, I hope she's, she's going to forgive me too, but it's not like that. I can't, she can't get that time back. I can't give her that time back. It's been paid. Um, in, in good cases, in good circumstances, you know, somebody comes to their senses, they repent, they're sorry, they, they even maybe try to make some restitution, but sometimes there's just no paying back um, in, in like kind. And the person who's offended, the, the, the person who's hurt, has to pay the debt for them. They're absorbing the pain. They're absorbing the cost. We know this. And this is what Jesus did on the cross for us. He absorbed the pain. He absorbed the cost of our sin. And he took it on his body, into his soul, into his heart, so that all of us who trust in him might have our payment paid in full. This is why on the cross he said it's finished, right? Debts aren't wiped out. They're not erased. They're not forgotten. They're paid. They're either paid by the person who owns them or the person who... It's not neutral. So Jesus forgives us. He is the one who paid our debt for us. It's finished. It's paid in full. And therefore, it does no good to say, hey, we don't need redemption. It also does no good to say, well, maybe it's not finished. Can pay back a little bit. 
right? I mean, we do this sort of on a daily basis sometimes. Oh, I didn't get my quiet time in. Uh, I better do that so that I can stay in God's good graces. We do it on a weekly basis. Oh, I got to go to church. Or I got to take communion. You know, I got to do this or that or the other just because that's how, you know, God likes me. We do it, we sort of have revival redemption. Uh, I'm going to walk the aisle. I'm going to pray the prayer. I'm going to get baptized again and just kind of, you know, pay my debt and, and get right. Like these are all the ways that we sort of have this instinctive neurotic effort to try to pay God back. And he says, I don't want any of that. I've paid the debt. It's finished. It's full. It's secure. It's final. We don't pay God rent to be in his house. We come free, but we do have to come. Jesus, what works must we do in order to do the works that God requires? Well, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. We turn from trusting in ourselves, our self-righteousness, or even our bad deeds. We turn from that, and we, and we believe in Jesus, and we rest in him. He's accomplished our redemption, and he applies it to us through his spirit just by faith in him, trusting in him. All right, that's a lot. Let me end with this. Why? Why does God redeem us? Why does he pay that price? Why go through all of the, the agony of the cross? Why, why drink those, you know, the, the dreadful spice? Why do that? Do you know? Do you know why he redeemed you? Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the living God? A long time ago, um, President of Westminster Seminary, John Murray, wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And we just kind of walked through what the accomplished part was. And he, he writes that all that has been secured and procured for them and the once for all accomplishment of redemption, all of which they become the actual partakers in the application of redemption is embraced within the compass. If you, you know, have a compass and you draw a circle. It's embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. Union and communion with Christ is why he redeems us, to serve the living God who wants to be in a relationship with us. When Moses and Aaron would go to Pharaoh, six times God sent them into Pharaoh's audience saying, let my people go. Why? so they may serve me, so they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, so they may worship me. To serve equals to worship. To worship equals to serve. Like this is the, 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 the tragedy of idolatry. Like this is the, 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 the reason why God is so committed to calling our neighbors and the nations away from idols is because you can't have union and communion with a bag of charcoal. It's dead. 
We're made for union and communion with the living God, with Jesus. That's the good news that he accomplished for us. He redeemed us. And then he sends us out. He sends us out to our neighbors and to the nations to call them to serve and to worship and to love the living God. Yeah, he's angry at idolatry. But he's compassionate toward those who are lost and blind and being foolish and futile. Let's show them the beauty and the reality of the redemption that we have in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for this eternal, uh, secure, uh, once-for-all redemption that is ours through Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to live in light of what's been done for us, um, that we would love you in response, that we would praise you, that we would serve you, that we would worship you. Or not to score points, not to, to, to add to or, or accomplish something that you haven't finished yet, but instead just as an expression of our love and our gratitude. Lord, change us and, and refine us and purify us, we pray. Thank you that you have redeemed us, that you went to the cross, that you rose from the dead uh, to forgive us and to make us new creations. Lord, would you make Tabernacle a place that rejoices in our redemption, that knows that we need to have that paid, that we know that redemption is so important and that um, you're not just forgiving or forgetting, but you're paying our sins. Lord, we pray uh, for all of us to know these things and to grow in these things. We, we pray in particular for some of our...